I mean, it was, it was, you know, it's great being out with them. It's, it's quite exciting. And, you know, kind of being in a car kind of at midnight, um, getting driven around sort of random London estates, you know, looking for this, you know, supposed killer. Um. Hey, it's that time again, CNFers, where we bring you the cherry on top of the banana split that is the creative nonfiction podcast, the show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. This is the time of the month where I have the esteemed pleasure of speaking with the featured writer about the featured piece for the Atavist magazine. In a moment, we'll hear from Phil Hode, who is this week's, or this month's, I should say, writer uh, for the Atavist, who lives in the south of France, which gave me some serious tender-as-the-night vibes, and who wrote this month's piece about a couple of pet detectives, if you will animal rights activists in England who sought to solve a rash of pet murders. It's a beautiful piece. It's, uh, it's good stuff. It's great stuff. Before that, we'll, of course, hear from Jonah Ogles, the lead editor on this piece, about what gave the story legs from the start and a, a few matters of pitching that is always helpful and elucidating. Wow, that's a, that's a five-syllable word and out of bounds for this enterprise. Usually when we stray from three-syllable words, we start getting into dangerous territory, man. Before I turn you loose like a school of piranhas on Jonah and Phil, be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. Be sure to head over to brendanomero.com hey, hey, for show notes and to... Uh, for show notes to this episode and like a trillion other interviews I've done with memoirs, essayists, and maybe more germane to you guys... Narrative journalists like Susan Orlean, David Gran, Patrick Radden-Keefe, Eli Saslow, Ted Conover, Tracy Kidder, Laura Hillenbrand, many more. I mean, come on. If you're feeling froggy, leave a kind review on Apple Podcasts. Always rises the tide here at CNF Pod HQ. I deleted the Facebook page because, you know, whatever, for the show. And, uh, and I'm on the fence about the other two. But if you want to keep the conversation going, by all means, follow CNF Pod on Instagram and Twitter for all kinds of great content, and uh, it, which usually just means uh, audiograms and uh, pictures of zines I make. Yeah, we're living our best life over here, and uh, so let me just extend my COVIDian elbow and say hello. Hey, maybe, maybe now, why not? Why waste any time? So now let's uh, let's get the band together and, and get into it. First with Jonah, and then with the journalist, Phil freaking Hode. Yeah, those those two characters, and and to to Phil's credit, you know he he knew that he had good characters when he pitched that story. You know, some, sometimes you assign a story and you, it's sort of a happy accident that you find characters who are honest and open and, and vulnerable with you. Um, sounds like a, I'm talking about the bachelor or something right now. Um, but, <laughs> but he, he knew it going in, you know, um, he he knew they were just gold and that they were colorful and lively and 
and complicated and flawed and really uh, interesting human ways that I think a lot of people can relate to, or I hope a lot of people will relate to when they read the story. Why don't you uh, just tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what, what this story's about and what uh, made you want to sink your teeth into it as the lead editor on this piece? Yeah. Well, the story is about uh, a couple of, we call them pet detectives, uh, two, two individuals who have a long history of rescuing animals and are incredible lovers of animals and, and our pets. And they notice that animals start showing up dead in, in their area of London. And so they embark on a, a quest to try to stop these deaths from happening. It, it quickly becomes apparent to them that this is probably the work of a human being rather than just an accident uh, or a one-off thing. It's a sustained series of killings. And they want to protect these animals and to stop this individual, whoever they may be. And, you know, the the idea came to us, and it was one of those pitches that I read, and before I had finished reading it, I wanted to do the story. And, and part of that was... Phil's voice, the the way he writes, he 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 walks a really fine line in this story between being being glib <laughs> about it, um, but all but also being uh, you know honest about the the impact that it's having on on these individuals and about you know the impact that it might have on readers. You know, it's a, it's a it's a tough, it's a tough story to read at times. Uh, some, you know, I have a cat and a dog and, and I love them both dearly. And so it, it can be a difficult one for, for readers to read about. And, and Phil already knew how to, to toe that line, how to be, be lighthearted without dismissing, um, the gravity of the situation. And so that, that was one aspect of it, but also these characters, Boudica and Tony, they, they just came off the page right away, right in the pitch. I, I wanted to spend more time with them. I got a taste of who they were, what their personalities were like. I, I just wanted more. Before I had even finished the pitch, I knew I want more time with these characters. What was it ab- about the way Phil framed it in the pitch that elevated Tony and Boudica to be like someone before you even finish the end of it? You're like, oh, I want to hang out with these people longer. Yeah, it, it was it was the scenery in the pitch, you know, and and by that, I, I just mean the, you know, there were quotes uh, from them in in a scene rather than in an empty space. Um, and so often we get pitches in which writers say, oh, I have amazing characters, but then there are no quotes or there's no description of the person and, and not, not even necessarily what the character looks like, but how, how they move through the world, you know, how, how they, uh, and that can mean, physically how they move through the world. But, but more often I, I 
I think of it in, in terms of like, what type of person is this? And, and Phil was able to really make that, make them feel alive because he had spent time with them. You know, he had, he had already uh, gone out on some of the calls with them where they were reporting to, you know, injured or, or dead animals. And he already knew who they, who they were. And, and when you have that under your belt, it's a lot easier to make those scenes really pop and make an editor feel like they know the person you're writing about. Do you find in your experience that a lot of reporters, whether they be you know younger or even you know mid-career, a little more seasoned, that they sometimes fail to do enough legwork early on or they discount the amount of legwork you have to do early on in order to create an evocative pitch that says, okay, yes, let's take the bridle off and turn you loose. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is pretty common, especially among younger writers, but uh, there are some experienced hands that, that seem to fail to do it. And, you know, I always feel bad as an editor, um, you know, asking writers to go out and spend a bunch of time reporting, uh, unpaid time, (laughs) um, and energy Mm -hmm. on those things. But it really does make a huge difference when you're pitching. And, And the other thing that happens sometimes is writers will just get really close to a subject and they, they will be so focused on maybe the paper trail that they've spent so much time digging up that, that they forget that editors, you know, editors assign pieces, at least at places like the Atavis based on the story that, that we can tell, you know, the, the reporting is great. I, I don't mean to undervalue it at all. The great reporters often make great writers, but when you're pitching a story, I think writers do sometimes forget that the pitch is a story too. You know, and so it's great to tell us everything mm. that they found in the course of their reporting. But editors want that scenery. They want they want proof that the writer it both has gone out and spent time with characters, but also proof that they are capable of doing that and then translating it onto the page. Because that's it's a difficult thing to do, and not every writer is great at it. Yeah, it's. Um... I, and I'm I'm guilty of it. I, I my batting average with pitches is is abysmal. And uh, but sometimes when I frame it like you know it's a, it's essentially kind of like a movie trailer. It's this thing that is like a self packaged thing of some of the highlights. And it's a uh, oh this is this is a bite sized version of what the bigger thing is gonna be. And if you can do that, it's like ultimately it's like okay how can I how how can I make how can I grease the skids in such a way that you it's a, your only answer is to say yes that that's the only option I love this trailer yeah that that I've not thought of it that way but that's the perfect analogy and I so often tell writers the first two paragraphs of your pitch should probably be the the same as as the first two paragraphs of your story and I, and I don't mean literally the same words but it should feel like the first two paragraphs of a story, you know, in the same way that the opening of any piece should feel really immersive uh, and alive. You want the pitch to do the same thing. And then you can move on and tell us about 
how many sources you've talked to and uh, all the reporting you've done and how you see the shape of the story uh, coming into view. But really the, the introduction, the thing that's going to get any editor to pay attention is the writer showing off a little bit. Like, see, see how good I can be at this scene stuff. Yeah, and, and a certain measure of uh, tonality in that the pitch is of the same world as the story that's probably coming your way, too, in terms of uh, just mood and the way you're evocative, because you want to make sure that it's congruent with the, the bigger thing. And I imagine it can be they can be kind of uh, disparate sometimes that the pitch reads a certain way and then the longer story doesn't feel that way and vice versa, I imagine. Right. And, and that was one of the things that stood out with Phil's pitch, you know, was that he had the tone, he had the tone right from the very beginning, or he, he, he was writing in a, in a voice that I thought was, was right for this type of story and what I was imagining. And, and you can imagine a version of this pitch where you just start really dark because there are murdered pets in it. You know, you you could write it as dark as you wanted to and and he he had an instinct and i i think it was the right one to to not be as dark as he could be but but to present it honestly and, and also be honest about uh you know the moments of levity that that we were going to encounter and and we even before we assigned the story i talked to phil about the tone just to make sure this is what you're planning, right? You're not, you're not gonna, you don't want to veer too far from this. This is the tone. This is the way to tell the story. And, and that's what he wanted to do, which is exactly what I wanted to hear. Excellent. And when I was speaking to Phil the other day, and he said that, you know, one of the, one of the concerns or one of the, uh, at least the point point of conversation between the two of you was how he was going to, you know, land the piece, how it was going to, end so maybe without giving too much away maybe you can just kind of uh let us a little bit behind the curtain about how you how you both went about making sure that you know this piece was uh synthesized in such a way where the ending did uh it, it paid off in a way that felt you know uh you know congruent with the you know the, the piece right and, and this is something we deal with a lot at the atavist uh and something we talk to almost every writer about from the very beginning is where is this going to end and how do we do it in a satisfying way? So I think it's smart for writers and editors to, to try to have that conversation early because it helps set expectations because I think writers and editors are both prone to, to getting a little bit overexcited sometimes and having an idealized version of the way the story is going to end. But the the truth is that ending is probably not the one that you'll land on ultimately. Um, and so it, with Phil, we, we just talked about, okay, well, what if, what if X happens as you continue to report? What if, what if Y happens as you continue to report? And, for for us in this particular story we we felt confident enough in the two characters that we spend so much time with and and Phil's access to them and and how open they were willing to be with us that 
we felt confident that sort of regardless of, of what happened with the plot and the plot points, uh, that we we were going to be able to move move readers through the story with these two characters in, in a way that that allowed readers to see growth and failure and change in, in these characters, and then ultimately uh, land it in a place that felt um, satisfying, even if not expected. Well, it's great. It's a it's a great piece, and I can't wait for readers to dig into it. So, uh, well, Jonah, thank you for uh, giving us a little peek behind the curtain about the mechanics behind the piece, and and uh, thanks for hopping on the podcast here, so we can uh, uh, properly tease out Phil's wonderful story about this, uh, you know, very uh, with two very uh, cool, quirky, uh, and passionate people at the center of this. So, thanks for the time, and and uh, we'll get right to Phil Hode now. Thanks so much for having me. Why don't we jump right in and maybe you can tell me a little a little bit about how you arrived at this story. Uh, well, basically, I mean, I was in France. I'd moved to France in 2015 and I was sort of starting to break out of what was my kind of previous career of being a film critic. And I was looking for kind of longer stories. I mean, often linked to, to France. But in this case, um, I'd read something um, in the British press, I think at the end of, um, 2017 about this kind of spate of serial pet murders that were being investigated um, by by an animal rescue um, group called Snarl and it, it just sounded like such an intriguing kind of story that I, I began to look into it you know as potential for something to sort of hook a larger kind of story into and um, it kind of quickly became apparent you know that the people involved Boudicca and Tony were sort of really eccentric kind of people so um really interesting people and extroverts and and so i mean it appeared to me immediately that there was sort of potential to turn it into something larger and um and at the time in britain there was a kind of a lot of coverage of the story you know it it had gone into all the kind of british nationals i think because of these kind of pretty quirky kind of elements and i think it appealed appealed to a kind of um side of the british kind of psyche that's you know very concerned with anything sort of domestic and sub and suburban and so um it was getting a lot of coverage and uh and, and at the time I mean I thought I was going to kind of write it for a, a British outlet and and that fell through for kind of various reasons but um but then it became a question of you know where I could how I could develop the story for another kind of publication and what did that the the calculus of that development look like and how did you know you know, how to shape it in such a way that it could, uh, you know, a narrative evolved from it where it, it seemed, you know, germane to pitch to, you know, pitch to Atavis. And I, I suspect other other places, too. You know, what what were you what were you thinking there? Well, actually, I mean, I, d I didn't pitch it to anyone else. Um, I mean, after this first kind of outlet, I mean, I, I sort of sat on the story for quite a while and um, there were some quite sort of dramatic developments um i mean i without wanting to spoil everything the the metropolitan police in london were involved in investigating these these crimes alongside the animal rescue center and um they um pulled out um very abruptly of the case in 2018 and and after that all, kind of all interest in in the case because the, the the met police said that they believed it was not an actual human who was killing these kind of pets it was um foxes is what they concluded and 
And pretty much all the kind of British media at that point just lost interest because they took that as the kind of official um, verdict of, of the case and that and the case wasn't worth following anymore. So I think what, what the point at which I began to realize that there was scope to sort of do something much bigger was, was the point at which pretty much all the domestic press kind of lost interest in the case. And, and then I kind, of thought, I kind of ended up just following what was happening kind of quite low-key kind of way on Facebook and Tony and Boudicca's um, Facebook pages and Snarl, the Animal Rescue Group's Facebook page. And, and various things began happening in their kind of private lives after the public interest in the story had gone. And these things kind of made me so sort of interested in, in, in carrying on telling their story. Which, which to me had begun to sort of deepen and become a lot more um, kind of interesting and uh, a lot more kind of tragic in some ways, I think. And 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 it it just it just appeared to me that there was a kind of a whole dimension of um, human interest that that would snare the kind of you know snare the kind of interest of like publications from outside of the outside of the UK. And it was just a kind of universal story that. You know, it was talking about humans and animals, and um, and so I, I didn't pitch to anyone else in the end. I, I mean, I pitched straight to the activist, and, and as I say, the kind of the sort of unbelievableness of the story was was I think enough for them to kind of take an interest, and then and then it really became a kind of issue of how are we going to shape the story. Yeah, I'm always interested in in the the shaping and the structure and how the the reporting informs one or this or the you know the the story informs the kind of the the reporting mm. in a way and it's uh so in what were some uh not for lack of a better term for struggles in trying to find the right structure and the right through line you know as you follow your your two main characters throughout this this story um well i mean there there was a natural kind of entry point into the story in that they were trying to get the official authorities to be interested and to to sort of accompany them and help them and support them and you know and essentially lead the case because i mean you know these are two people who were who were kind of one of one of whom was working um and you know they didn't initially want to have to sort of take the responsibility of dealing with these kind of bereaved pet owners and and they didn't have the forensic resources to really look at the case look at each individual cases you know and 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 by, by 2017 which was the first real full year of the case there were already hundreds of different different incidents of cats being mutilated so I mean th th there was a kind of natural build-up in terms of them um, trying to get the RSPCA who are Britain's main animal protection kind of agency and the Met Police involved so I mean that was the initial kind of uh, part of it and then I mean I guess after that the Met's withdrawal was another big kind of anchor point in the in the story and examining whether or not that was justified and how how snarl were treated in the kind of aftermath of that but after that i mean you know as i say without wanting to spoil the story i mean these these personal events kind of lent a kind of natural arc to things and then i think the main difficulty from my point of view was i mean i've kind of got an obsession with and i guess suspect a lot of writers do with with kind of texture and detail and and this case was so kind of complicated and involved like so many hundreds of incidents at different people's homes. You know, I think there was a sort of tendency to want to overwhelm the story with, with with detail and incident. And so, I mean, that was that was one kind of difficulty. And I think that was something my editor, Jonah, had to kind of deal with. Yeah. So and then I guess the final the final obstacle was 
was the ending and 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 that was again i mean when when i pitched a story didn't really have an ending i mean they were still investigating the case and that was something jonah asked me immediately was you know how are we gonna how are we, how are we going to resolve this story you know to the satisfaction of the kind of readers and uh and we we you know i mean i guess when readers uh, look at the story they'll, they'll see how we tried to do that but it wasn't it wasn't obvious and that and that was the you know the real stumbling block in terms of selling the story to the activist i love that you brought up uh obsession with you know detail and and to me like a, a really a through line of this piece is how obsession can drive people but it can also drive people apart and yeah was was that something that kind of occurred to you over the course of your reporting like just sort of this double-edged sword of of obsession well, it, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, they're, they're, they're obsessive people to start with. I mean, I mean, you could call it obsession, I guess, but I mean, passion would be another word for it. And they, you know, they really love and believe in animals. And, and so they're sort of driven by, um, you know, this need to kind of protect them. And, and that's, and that's why they, you know, Boudicca, who had a job, started to spend all our kind of waking hours, you know, compiling incidents and looking at, you know, horrific photographs and Tony devoted basically his entire life to, you know, going out and um, collecting bodies and doing, you know, animal CSI on the, on these kind of crime scenes. And, you know, so, I mean, it, you know, it started with, you know, it's obvious that it was driven by passion, but I mean, in, in their case, I mean, as soon as, especially as soon as I found out the kind of cost to their personal lives, which as, as I say, the, I mean, the media had a, the British media had a tendency to treat it as a bit of a, kind of quirky amusing jokes kind of story but i mean once the met pulled out and they um you know in, in quite a disrespectful way in my opinion i mean the met didn't acknowledge um the worth of the work even if they were wrong about there being a human killer um the met didn't really sort of give them the respect that you know you give with your colleagues with whom you've been working for two and a half years and, and i think given that uh loss of you know, dignity in some ways, and then the sort of, you know, massive personal repercussions for them that followed, you know, out of the public eye, then, then I think there is, there is a sort of side where, where they, um, you know, passion led to, led to something that has sort of essentially kind of made their lives very, very difficult. And I mean, the story does have kind of comic elements and, and Tony and Boudicca are very sort of extrovert outspoken people with a really funny turn of phrase but i mean the, the effects on their lives of you know I, I, th I don't think it's um a stretch to call to call them tragic and and um you know and i think at one point in the piece i compare the, the effect of the investigation to to the david fincher film zodiac because it is that sort of case of uh, an investigation that that just you know destroys the lives of the people on you know who, who are working on the case and and you know that and that became clear to me really as you're uh, going about the the reporting and you and, and you meet Tony and Boudicca, uh like what is the, you know what was what was it like for you joining them and their you know in their pursuit and trying to essentially crack crack this case you know what you know put us put the boots on the ground if you will. It was a, it was a kind of slow process for me to sort of get into that position because initially I mean I was one of like dozens of reporters who were knocking on their door asking for access to you know what they were doing and and so they kind of you know didn't see me as any being any different um from all these other people who who you know just have quite fleeting kind of engagements with them so i mean initially i met them you know in a cafe a couple of times at the beginning of 2018 just to discuss the case in in general terms and i and i thought the story was going to be much 
shorter kind of thing. And then, and then I sort of actually went out on a kind of uh, crime scene with Tony in the middle of 2018. And it was this kind of, you know, pretty anonymous kind of London street um, next to a kind of church with, with a, you know, a, a sort of uh, dissected, bisected fox in, in a kind of alley, you know, so it's kind of stinking of, you know, just vermin and, you know, and, and, and obviously that's pretty horrible, but um, but also, I mean, seeing, you know, Tony deal with the family who who had spotted this animal kind of next to them, next to their house and, and were kind of living in fear of their cats. And, and there'd been a lot of um, media kind of furore around the case. So, I mean, you know, it was, it, was, it was almost witnessing like, you know, the kind of media reaction to the case as well. But I mean, but again, you know, it's still at that point, I was still writing it for this other publication and um, my engagement with them wasn't that deep. And, and I think just through the process of actually still caring about the story once everyone had stopped caring about it and being in fairly kind of um, frequent contact with them, because, you know, I'm still living in France and I was just ringing them every so often to kind of get an update. And, and I think through that and through the, the fact that, um, you know, I just, I just showed a kind of persistent interest. I mean, that that sort of. I think we've moved on to a slightly more kind of um, intimate kind of footing, and and then and then the last sort of phase of reporting was you know this quite intense kind of process of going out with Boudica, who now has her own separate organisation um, for reasons I won't sort of fully explain now. But I mean she is she's taking a very different approach to Tony. She is now sort of not actively like um, doing crime scene work anymore and collecting bodies. She's kind of going on stakeout, um, profiling suspects, you know, and drifting into this very kind of like gray area, sort of vigilante-esque activity. And, um, you know, and and again, I mean, this is another thing that I, I was so, that made me so keen to write the story was that, you know, it's just a sort of contrasting sort of take on on their contrasting forms of their obsession. And I mean, it was, it was you know, it's great being out with them. It's, it's quite exciting and, you know, kind of being in a car kind of at midnight, um, getting driven around sort of random London estates, you know, looking for this, you know, supposed killer um, kind of in, 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 in the small hours in the morning. And, you know, all that stuff's quite exciting. And, and, and that was part of that sort of last phase of 10 day phase of reporting I did. And, and the other half was spent um, with Tony kind of doing what he's always been doing. And, you know, and, and he's, he's a very caring guy and, and he, you know, he's doing this kind of amazing pastoral work with with families as well as, um, you know, picking up, you know, horribly mutilated and decapitated cats and stuff. And, and um, so, you know, I mean, that that was just a sort of tragic and, and you know, weird as, as it's always been. But but again, I mean, you know, I was very lucky that they've, they've given me such kind of sustained access to, to everything that they're doing. And, um you know, and, sh- and being prepared to share, you know, so much of their lives, and and you know, and, and they have sort of discussed their, you know, private lives to a certain extent, and, and, and uh, you know, I had to make a big decision and, and sort of reassure them that I wasn't going to kind of abuse that access in any way. I mean, uh, you know, there's certain things that I was told that I just thought I just felt were kind of beyond the scope of what 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 they would want in the story. So I had to, I had to make a decision about that kind of thing too. And given that a lot of the the British press at the that that was around this case was, as you said, like pretty fleeting, in a very sort of come you know touch and go, come and go. Um, how key was it, or what were you able to to do in your reporting to engender the kind of trust with them that you weren't just going to zip in and zip out? You were kind of there for the long haul of this thing. Well, I, I don't want to downplay 
you know, that there was some very good British coverage. Um, and, you know, and, and to a certain extent, my piece has been reliant on, um, you know, reporting done by other people who were present at crucial points in the story when I when I wasn't. So, I mean, not all of it was kind of trivializing. Um, I mean, there was a very good piece in Vice. Uh, the uh, New York Times did a good piece. The Fancy Fair did a good piece. But, but I guess, I mean, all of them, you know, had this tendency to kind of be there kind of in the initial phase of the story. And, and once the sort of Met um, police gave their verdicts that they didn't think there was a real case to follow, then, I mean, it was a bit, for me, the main disappointing aspect was how, how easily most outlets swallowed that and that they didn't want to go any further. And I think it kind of raises questions about whether these kind of animal related crimes, you know, are, are actually worth sustained police resources and and are, and are worth our interest in you know and that's that's a kind of philosophical question but um and maybe and most newspapers and outlets just didn't feel that it merited any kind of sustained engagement kind of story but but i guess you know that's that's every publication has its own kind of angle on that and and my point of view is that the human story was even more so the investigation kind of extremely compelling and and i think Obviously, Snarl and Slain, the two groups now have have an interest in in getting more kind of coverage for the story, and you know, and I think that um, so they had their kind of motivation for wanting me to carry on reporting on it, and and they very kindly let me do that. But I mean, from my point of view, you know, I d- I just wanted to carry on telling the story, which I, I thought was amazing, and um, and I think their that interest was enough to kind of convince them. What do you think it will take for? more people and even law enforcement to take the the animal cruelty illustrated in the piece like this that it's not well it's not isolated this stuff happens um speak nothing of the barbarism that takes place in slaughterhouses and the way animals are treated in yeah, industrialized sure. industrialized uh CAFOs. Uh, uh but what do you think it'll take for for people to take these kind of crimes against animals as serious or at least a fraction as serious uh, as it does against people i don't know i mean it's a really difficult question to answer i mean it's a it's almost a bigger subject for a separate article but i mean i think things are changing slowly and i think the interest in this case is is a sort of sign of that to some extent although it's this is happening on such a you know wide scale if it is one killer then that it's hard not to take notice but i think there's a sort of general sea change in terms of more people um converting to stuff like veganism more awareness of like animals and animal sentience and um you know, animals as beings with emotional lives that are comparable to ours that i think slowly but surely that will you know have a have a kind of effect on lawmaking crime resource allocation you know um i think you know because i think you know some police forces obviously within this case were inclined to take it seriously others others not and you know so i think we're obviously in a kind of in a state of transition and and, you know some people are affected by you know just i mean not even just the pain and and suffering of the animals but the kind of pain and suffering of the owners and, and and the owners emotional relationships with those animals but but, you know, but I mean, the Met did decide to pull out because, you know, I mean, supposedly their excuse was that it was, there was no crime to investigate in, in there, unless you count animals and animals as a crime. But yeah, I, I mean, but but I think their real reason was that 
they just didn't have the time or resources to spend on such a you know a marginal kind of case from their point of view and and again you know i think there you know there is there is a wider philosophical argument to be had about um, whether or not animal crimes are equivalent to human crimes and and you know and, and perhaps they're not and then and then and they never will be but it doesn't mean that there's not some kind of um middle ground between the two and and that you know there couldn't be a, a bit more recognition of animal sentience and a bit and a bit more um willingness to view animals directly as, as victims of crime but i mean you know i think another point in the story Boudicca says to me you know uh, in terms of like um animal the killings of animals being viewed on a par with like a human murder she says you know and, i mean there and there are some criminologists this kind of school of criminologists called um species species non-speciesist criminologists who who think that that should be the case and and Boudicca said you know to me we're never in a million years going to get that you know and obviously that would make every abattoir like a kind of mass murder site and yeah um you know and that's and that's just this doesn't seem feasible as long as we're a kind of meat-eating, consuming society. But, but as I say, I mean, I do think there's a middle ground, and I do think that middle ground will be more probed over the next couple of decades. I think I'm guessing. Yeah, and you also write towards the end of the the piece that uh, that the Met got involved at all was a victory. It was proof that crimes against animals could be addressed with a seriousness of purpose hitherto unseen in the UK or anywhere else, for that matter. So there is progress and this could be just a lever in that direction yeah yeah i think i think i think that's true i mean but like i say i mean there is a danger that this case is so outlandish um that it, it's just a kind of novelty in some ways but i do but i do think you know that there, has, there will be some progress and, and and you know and even though the met kind of mothballed the case and in the end didn't take it with full seriousness there were officers working on the case who who did take it seriously and you know um that will hopefully continue in future but but you know but at the same time i mean i remember tony something i didn't mention in the piece that tony told me recently that he'd spoken to um some policeman in a particular branch of the met who had been asked to investigate an animal case subsequent to the met pulling out and basically, he just couldn't convince his uh, superiors, I think, to 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 commit any in, any resources to it because I think the pullout for the time being has made it impossible to for you know police officers to kind of justify that kind. Of, well, police officers in his precinct, at least, to justify getting involved in an animal crime, you know, for the time being. So, so so the case might actually, in the short term, have a kind of adverse effect, and and that's you know unfortunate. So. And of course, you know, at the center of all this are these, you know, gruesome, gruesome deaths of uh, primarily cats, some rabbits. And, you know, I've read foxes, foxes too. And fo- foxes, yep. And, and I also read the, you know, a great sort of essay that you wrote that's, you know, kind of a review of uh, Pixar's uh, soul. And at the center of that is, you know, how. Uh, death and how Pixar is in this uh, really uh, obsessed with death and even kind of making movies that seem to pivot towards mm-hmm. adults. And, you know, given the, the death at the center of this piece for Atavis and death at the center of at least that essay that you wrote in the guardian, I was wondering maybe what your relationship is to death and uh, you know, what you, I don't know how it resonates with you as, as a topic to write about and maybe something broader than that. Interesting question. I mean, I, I wouldn't have 
uh, necessarily predicted you to to ask me about that, but um, and I've never consciously thought it's something that I would want to address, like as a kind of consistent theme. But I mean, it definitely is like a massive factor in in my thinking. I mean, I've you know I've always sort of been horrified by the idea since I was a little kid, pretty much, and um, you know now yeah, I'm kind of too. reaching that, <laughs> and, I, and now I'm reaching a certain age as well where you know it's becoming more than a kind of abstract reality so um so yeah i don't i don't know maybe 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 it is but i mean you know and it's a a theme sort of tangentially related to death but but i mean you know change in general is is something that i'm interested in and and, you know i do think this story um has had you know uh, displays that as a kind of a thread throughout you know the way in which i guess you know, Tony and Boudicca have tried to sort of follow a consistent principle, you know, that that's obviously like a, a kind of stable thing in their lives, you know, loving loving and protecting animals and, 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 and standing by that as a kind of moral principle. But but that sort of attachment to that kind of that pole in their lives has, has, has ended up changing them and um, changing their lives. And, and you know, and, and, I, and I do, I don't know, I mean, to me, there's that idea of there's something deathly about that in, 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 in some ways. And, um, but I would, but I wouldn't have said that death, you know, or, or the fascination with death or, or the, you know, the actual sort of physical aspects of these crime scenes, which are pretty horrible um, in, in places that it was, was something that particularly drew me to it. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of, uh, I'm not like uh, drawn to like crime writing or detective mm-hmm. stuff by, per se or anything like that. So. Given that you you know your primary background was in writing you know for cinema and and yeah. and you're and you're kind of making this other this kind of a, a journalistic pivot if you will yeah. you know what was that inflection point for you that you wanted to you know take your skills in in a different direction Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I was I I was working on the Guardian's arts desk for a long time. I was production editor there. I mean, and I carried on writing. Uh, I was a film kind of reviewer and kind of pontific professional pontificator but I mean when I moved to France I just you know I just I mean I was kind of slightly severed suddenly from that kind of London screening circuit and and you know and I've been writing about film for a long time and I, and I kind of just wanted to get I don't know st- stop doing not stop doing but move into doing stories with more of a connection with the real world and suddenly being out on my own here discovering a new country was kind of perfect excuse to do that and and so uh, you know I, I wrote a long piece about Marseille more of a portrait of the city and then I started looking for other stories to write about and I ended up doing um, another couple of lo- pretty long investigative pieces one on um, an art fraud uh, in a town near the border with Spain where 60% of the artworks in a museum turned out to be fake and and another story about another fraud story actually so maybe there's a current theme there about the <laughs> a woman called Jeanne Calmont who was the France's oldest woman and the oldest woman to have ever existed in in the in the world um oldest certified um centenarian and whether she'd been actually replaced by her own daughter for for t- for, f- for fiscal uh fraud reasons um kind of crazy story and so so I did, I did these two stories for the guardian um but in actual fact i mean i'd started looking into the cat story before these two other stories and so you know i was, I was just on the lookout for 
I mean, long stories with with a kind of really compelling, like just human angle, and and maybe not that didn't revolve so rigidly around kind of thematic identifying themes, you know, and and stuff like that. That a lot of film writing revolves around, and you know, and I still I still love film writing. I still love cinema, but it's it's I just found it was important for me to have a stronger contact with the kind of real world, and um, you know, and that's and that's what I've been trying to do. I mean, but it's just not that easy sometimes to. To find stories that haven't already been heavily um, covered, you know, by by people, you know, to, to find little human interest items in often small um, articles in, in newspapers, and and just see that they've got the kind of scope to to broaden them out into something to something bigger. And um, I'm you know I'm lucky that people kind of lost interest in 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 their cat story really, and I was I was there to carry it carry it forward. Fantastic. Well, Phil, this is great talking to you and getting to unpack that story a little bit. Um, can you just uh, maybe let people know, uh, you know, where you where you hang out online and your know, website or social media in case they want to check you out and uh, you know, you know, see what see what you're doing? Uh, I think the only sort of uh, vaguely interesting thing I do on social media is just on my Twitter feed, which is uh, at flowed, which is P H L O D E. Um, but apart, apart from that, uh, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't do Facebook. Um, that's pretty much it. Really. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for hopping on the podcast, Phil. And, and thank you so much for the work. Thanks for having me, Brendan. Hey, I would say that was a toe tapping good time, right? I think so. I mean, my toes are always tapping. Now, I usually go into a prolonged parting shot where I talk about all kinds of bullshit about my writing life and the mundanity of whatever bullshit I'm dealing with or going through. But I'll spare you because the episode prior to this one where I spoke with uh, the great basketball writer Jackie McMullen has all kinds of Brendan nonsense at the end. So if you feel like staying abreast of that, by all means, listen to the end of that one. So thanks to Jonah for hopping on the pod to unpack Phil's piece and get into the the intricacies of pitching and of course Phil it's great calling all the way in from Europe always always great across the great United Continental US and the uh, the vast expanse of the Atlantic Ocean brought to you by Zencaster and a couple microphones and boom there is Phil Hode what a world we live in but you know today like I said, I usually go into a huge diatribe of some kind or another, which I spare you by putting it at the end of the show instead of forcing you to listen to it or hit your skip-aheads at the start of the show. So, But today, for this one, we're just going to close this out by saying that CNF Pod is a production of Exit 3 Media, produced, hosted, and everything by me, Brendan O'Mara. Hey, hey. Check the show out on Instagram and Twitter, at CNF Pod, and do me this one solid, will ya? Stay cool, see you in efforts. Stay cool forever. See ya.